Welcome to Tilly's Trans Tuesdays. This is the second part of Tilly's 2023 Trans Rep in Media. This week, we're discussing the first half of Trans Rep in Television. Tilly Bridges, your host, and I'm joined by my writing partner, my best friend, my wife, our token cis representation, the co-star I'm always fine with stepping into my shot, Susan Bridges. Hello! I like that one. That's funny. Thank you. Our returning guest is critic and journalist Maureen Mo Ryan, a contributing editor at Vanity Fair who has written for Entertainment Weekly, The New York Times, EW, Salon, GQ, and Vulture. Prior to joining Vanity Fair, she worked as a television critic at Variety, Huffington Post, and the Chicago Tribune. In addition to criticism, opinion pieces, and feature stories about the entertainment industry, she has spent much of the last decade writing in-depth pieces on matters of inclusion, misconduct, and abuse in Hollywood, and on efforts to make the industry better on a variety of fronts. Her first book, Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood, is a deeper exploration of these issues and was released last June. Welcome back, Mo. Thank you for having me again. Of course. Though we were book birthday buddies. Our books both came out in June of last year. Oh. So that's how we started talking. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So I want to talk a little and bit also, about... And also, I feel like 2023 authors, we were all just like, okay, how much is social media going to be attract? Like, can I just promote my book? So, you know what I mean? I, I do feel bad for people because... So often authors are, we have to depend on our followings on different platforms and get the word out. And so, yeah, that was, 2023 was a weird year for that. So I I felt a kinship. We had our books come out (laughs) the same month even. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really cool. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about Burn It Down now. It covers broadly and then in remarkable detail, abuse, discrimination, and so much more within the film and television industries. And it's a vital read for anyone working in this industry, but I think it's just as important for people who are fans of movies and TV, because you're the audience for this art, and you should know what the people, what people are sometimes going through to bring you your entertainment. So I wanted to ask you, Mo, like, how did the book come about? Did it start as an article that you realized needed way more room, or was it seeing the broad pattern of things over years that made it clear like a full book would be necessary? Those were contributing factors. I think probably the overwhelming thing, and I can point to a specific moment. Yeah. You know, when, you know, obviously there had been abuse and misconduct reporting about the industry before. Like, I don't, I don't want to erase the people who not only tried to write about Harvey Weinstein. When people say, why didn't the media do blah? Well, first of all, the industry is on fire and being destroyed. It sure is. But aside from that, we... People tried and people did do things, you know, people, people did write about the bad aspects of the industry, but definitely me too. I mean, in terms of me writing about 
that topic specifically, it broke things kind of wide open. And so, but I was continuing to do that work for, you know, for, for years. And in 2021, it was kind of a, a convergence of many things. You know, my stories were getting longer because I yeah. do think that you do need to have nuance. You do need to talk to a lot of people. You do need to have more context, not less. So that was part of it. But a big a big factor was hearing someone say literally word for word about one powerful person in the industry, what someone had said about a different powerful person in the industry who was, you know, a misconduct factory four years earlier. You know, it's like, you know, sometimes you have those deja vu experiences that are like the bad kind. I'm like, yeah, wait, how how is it more than four years? How is it four years later and people are saying the same sentences to me I like this is like this is just making me you know you have those moments where you're like does this make any difference am I screaming into a void is the void yeah. any attention whatsoever I don't know so that was kind of a big part of it and I remember you know texting some like yelling yelling screaming complaining to a friend and I, I looked at the, the group of text and I'm like well if you take out a lot of the profanity this is looks like a book it's a book proposal <laughs> so you know I I just at this I'm actually at the point where I think there will always be a need for the media to talk about companies people individuals formal and informal networks that not only commit abuses but facilitate or enable abuses or look the yeah. other way in every industry but especially in sure. this one where silence is very much golden for the most part in terms of like you don't get rewarded for stepping out of line quite often. Yeah. Quite the, quite the reverse. So I thought I just I just want to kind of do a mic drop and, and say this this is not these are not a lot anomalies. We, yeah. we go to the bad result factory and go, why why does this factory continue to pump out bad results, bad outcomes? Well, it's right there on the side of the factory. It says bad outcomes here. You know, like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so much bigger than one person. And I got very tired of doing the, like, you know, bad person of the month club. Yeah. Don't join that club. Pro tip. Don't join. It's a bad club. Don't. I will make an effort club. to stay out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for the warning. It's the worst ever subscription. Yeah. No. So I just thought, especially in Hollywood where people hide behind the scrim of glamour and, you know, we're illuminating our world. We're doing good things. Okay. But right. But if all the people with most of the power look the other way at continual abuse that is reclassified as artistry or passion or energy, I don't want, I, I don't want to celebrate that. That's that's not what's happening here. And I just wanted to again, like, do a very sort of deep deglamorization of, yeah, people are human beings. Everyone has flaws. Everyone has bad days. That's not what my book was about. My right. book was about systems and, and formal and informal patterns of codifying abuse as not just necessary but beneficial in Hollywood. That's a it's, it's a lie and. And a big thing I feel deeply in my bones is there are a lot of people, as you know, who can't speak out. Yeah. I'm more protected. I'm more insulated than they are. So if, if I can do it in a context that is responsible and kind of unimpeachable, <laughs> you know, like 
I, my reporting is very difficult and gets fact checked and lawyered a lot. And yeah, nobody's ever sued me. Knock wood. Um, so I feel very strongly about getting it right. And, and a thing I'm not going to do is tell people who are thinking of entering the industry, have entered the industry, either rising up through the ranks of the industry at the lower levels of the industry or in historically excluded communities within the industry. What I'm not going to do is stand with that group of people that tells them they're not experiencing what they're experiencing and that they should just be grateful for the crumbs that they get. I'm not going to yeah. do that. I did, like, I feel very strongly that if I have a profile, if I have any kind of juice or status, I'm going to use it to tell people it isn't you. It's the system. It really isn't you. And maybe, well, maybe it's you because, you know, you, <laughs> not you, 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 Susan and Tilly, but I'm saying, again, people have bad days. Everyone I've ever talked to for every story has had a moment where they're like, oh, I'd handled that badly. I have moments yeah. like that. Sure, we all do. But, but I think from the beginning of starting to cover this industry, what I realized was really important was to validate people when I felt it was necessary and beneficial to validate them because a lot of the industry functions you know we we hear about like okay an individual abuser will keep people in what i call separate silos of pain yeah. like everyone you know there's many workplaces that i've reported on where people didn't realize that they were all <laughs> being gaslit and manipulated and abused right. in different ways and they then they took it because abusers kind of want people to think that they're isolated and they yeah. don't have recourse. They don't have community. And so part of what I'm trying to say to people is you do have community. I don't know if you have recourse, but I can tell you for sure that you're not alone. Yeah. And so that's what I've been trying to do. It makes me very popular at studio parties. Executives love me generally. No, I'm kidding. I don't know. I mean, people feel all kinds of ways, but it's always interesting to me after a big story comes out, and certainly after the the, the book came out, I don't want to tell tales because, you know, I, a lot of the communications that I have with people in the industry are off the record. A lot of people wanted to be in a dialogue with me. And, you know, generally people I knew in some way or shape or form, or maybe sometimes not even people I knew, but they thought the book was necessary. And they, they thought it was, you know, hopefully leading to the kind of conversations that continue to need yeah. to happen. Like we need to, we need to have them to happen. And, and beyond that, what I'd really love to do in terms of Hollywood is say, stop talking about stuff and actually just do it. Because earlier I emailed Tilly somewhat, something that someone pointed out to me because I I feel like I've written, I've become like the broken record girl on so many topics, but I, I'd written something in 2017. Yes. You know, the get down was canceled and sensate was canceled and all these, like there was a wave of this sort of first wave of in a lot of the streaming realms, especially like, wasn't that the kind of like the feeling in like 2015, 16, 13? Oh, wow. Like they're giving a wider array of creators a chance and then they're canceling yeah. their shows <laughs> like yep. almost immediately yeah. or within two, two seasons or three seasons. And that hasn't stopped. And I actually wrote about this three years ago as well when I wrote for Vanity Fair. This is not a bug. This is a feature. If you liked that story... If you liked Sensate, okay, cool. We'll do this other thing over here that has that our algo is telling us has certain elements of that. It's like, no, but I wanted, I mean, that's like, you know, 
if your family pet gets run over by a car, you don't want your mother to come in the house and say, oh, that's okay. Other dogs exist. We'll just go get one of those. No, I want a pet dog, yeah. with which I had this history. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of it is just, you know, using my reporting skills, using my analysis capabilities and my ability to survey the industry and look at the stats of the industry. Because, like, that's kind of an interesting thing about Hollywood is there's so many stats. But one thing that I do, I mean, I, I read all kinds of sites. I've always been interested in fan communities. I, I can't sit there and say I know more about Supernatural than anyone else. But I, what I can say is that I'm watching, I, I, especially for a long time, less so now, I, I survey the field. You know what I mean? So, like, I can tell you how does Jane the Virgin fit into the representation of Latina women on television. Like, right. I, you know, again, I'm not from that community, but I can tell you why does it hurt that one day at a time was canceled after three seasons? Like what, what is the context around and behind that? Right. Right. So that's kind of what I think I bring to the table. And that book was the hardest thing I've ever done professionally. And I feel like I'm still mentally recovering from it. Yeah. I can for, really imagine. For a while. It was hard it was to read. Hard. It's hard. It is hard. And to it read. must have been very hard. To... Well, right. It's... Okay. It was. It was hard to read because of the abuses that you talk about. Not because it was like poorly written. It's beautifully written. It's oh, wonderfully written. You. But yeah, I had to stop every like yeah. chapter and like take a few days because I would get so mad at the injustices. <laughs> but I also want people to know that it's not just that. You know, there there's hope. You sort of outline this way forward at the end, which was really positive, and it's a really really vital an important book and I do want to get to the rest of this episode because it's going to be long because there's a lot of TV to talk about but I do want to take a second to thank you personally for including trans people and the barriers we face in Burn It Down because so often even in books or articles like that we're either forgotten or ignored when discrimination and lack of inclusion are discussed and I can't tell you how much it healed my heart to have you see us and our struggles and to put them in your book right along with the struggles of folks from you know, so many other marginalized communities for every reader to see. It meant so much to me. So thank you for doing that. Oh my gosh. Well, it's, I'm, thank you. I, I I'm weird about taking compliments, but I will try to accept that one. <laughs> thank you very much. That's um, very Midwestern. That's it's very true. Midwestern. It's <laughs> like, I become very tongue tied. You get it. Yeah. I think that, I think that you know, we're in the same boat. We're trying to highlight, yeah. I mean, I'm not doing the work that you're doing. But what you do is really important. So I'm just, here's, I'll do a very Midwestern thing. I'll turn it around on you. No, 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 no. Yes, I know. Be, get ready. Going to compliment okay. you and you're going to like it. Or at All least tolerate oh. it. Okay. So you're doing a lot of important work. And if I could, if I could just interject this, if there's one thing I'm known for, it's, you know, unsolicited advice. I feel like that's 80% of my, even my writing about the industry. It's like, what if you did this to your show? I mean, who <laughs> asked me? Nobody, no one asked me. Take care of you because that's a big theme for me. You know, the last third of the book, I was never going to write a book that was just the the hard stuff. Yeah. I always, 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 when I pitched it was saying, we're going to do a whole bunch of stuff around. Here's how people are doing it better now. Maybe they could even improve that, but it's always been possible to create an environment in which, yes, people have different points of view, may even have conflict, may even have arguments, may even, you know, maybe not be a personality match or whatever, or they get along great or they don't. 
there's always been ways to navigate that which that are not toxic that are not biased that are yeah, not absolutely. abusive and so let's talk about the fact that that's possible and we can do that and it's not it's you know melinda shoe taylor who i talk a lot to in the book has an actual training course that she now calls it's not rocket science it isn't it isn't you know my spouse actually works in a very different field which you know thank goodness because otherwise you know journalism i don't know what to tell you it's bad so it's a very conservative industry and a very conservative field and it's you know the the home office is in the midwest it could not be more square but they 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 fire people for being abusive and everyone knows that it's like it's not this is not hard find the people who are continually abusive who won't change bench them make sure they know the consequences for not changing a lot and then if they don't bounce them goodbye it's not that hard so but yeah i mean the, the the thing becomes hollywood has had more than a century to perfect its systems formal and informal of bias abuse misconduct and you know codifying much of that again as creativity I, I was asked not to swear on this podcast, but I think if you read my book, you'll know how I feel about that. So one thing I, 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 I sort of understand from the kind of cultural critique that we're doing right now, which is super fun and I love it, but it can be very hard to constantly dwell or very frequently dwell in that place of contemplating harm to not just oneself, but to one's community. Yeah. So by doing the work that I do, I hope to be someone who can, you know, act as a shield. I mean, a lot of the stories that I do, it's because, yeah, the script coordinator wasn't going to get that person fired on their own. But when they come together in community, and I think that the writer's strike and the SAG strike, what's been so instructive to me about Hollywood is all summer long I was being interviewed, and I I would say the following, Hollywood is a cautionary tale and an inspirational tale at the same time because a long time ago the guilds came about because people said as individuals we are absolutely powerless and we are being right. exploited to the hilt now we can have less maybe somewhat fewer instances of exploitation financially anyway if we band together and say no actually <laughs> we don't want the studios to come up with a guild that we then join that is not at all looking out for our interests right so there are there are ways in which Hollywood has demonstrated to the world that collective action can be effective, but as individuals, the folks. I mean, I, I talk to a lot of folks who are doing activism around the industry, as I'm sure you do too. Uh-huh. It's important that we have these people. I don't, you know, it's not up to me whether people consider me one of those folks, but I definitely have been like pointing out things I think need to be rectified or altered or evolved for a long time but we didn't make the system how it is we deserve to be happy we deserve to feel joy and i would just say that to anyone listening that if you just think sometimes i don't know how to deal with this or i don't know how to change this correct go have a pizza get a hug from someone you love pizza and hugs a plus on both (laughs) very good good. yeah Yeah. you know go you know like Within this world that is very difficult, it's really important to say how much of this is me 
tilting at windmills and you know and it, it, how much of how much of that is going to leave me in a place where I'm I'm so you know burned out that I can't do it anymore you know what I mean yeah. so I, I'm actually trying to I think you know I'm doing a little bit of a contemplation right now about you know what my next moves are because people are like are you gonna do a part two burn it down electric boogaloo and I'm like <laughs> and at that point I begin to feel that oh maybe I didn't make it clear which I do at the very end of the book that I don't I don't like the point was to show that these are the these are the bad outcomes that the bad outcome factory comes out with yeah right <laughs> I don't know how to say this another way so yeah I mean I would just say people who want to create create and do what you were put on this earth to do and just make sure that you take time to for yourself and to understand that it you know, if we're going to fix things as individuals, we can make a difference. But as a, as communities, I think we can make even more impact. And I think, you know, you've created a community around your work. So thank right. you. Okay. Well, before we dive into television, do you want to remind folks where they can find you online after listening? Yes, I'm on Blue Sky. I think it's more Ryan B Sky dot social I think but you can find me through my link tree which is under Maureen Ryan and also moryan.com has links to a lot of places that I hang out I'm also on Instagram moryan66 so that's probably the most places to find me perfect and I have a newsletter on moryan.com I have a newsletter that I'm very erratic with but if you want to sign up for my newsletter there's info on my site you should do that too do all those things okay so let's dive into TV and see if the representation will get any better. Once again, I'm only including things that we saw in this past year and that we saw in entire seasons of. Shows that are still only partway through their seasons are not included because until the season's over, I obviously cannot know how many trans people appeared. And to caution you once again, in order to discuss the trans rep in these shows, it necessitates talking about them, so there will be some spoilers. Okay, so before we get in, Mo, was there any trans rep that stood out to you in TV this year? Well, one thing that I thought about, because I don't think I've seen you write about this show, which is fine. Not everyone can watch everything. Yeah. But Foundation, Foundation on Apple. Yeah. I think Apple's overall doing a lot of interesting stuff in sci-fi. They really are. Yeah. So Silo was really interesting. I'm looking Severance forward to the next is great. that. Severance. Which boy, gosh, again, like now I, I, I feel like I've been given the gift of Tilly Brain. I'm like, wait a minute, Severance, <laughs> two different parts oh, of you. And you oh, like, yes, oh, there's, oh. it's, it's a very transy premise that show. <laughs> so, right? Yeah. Now I get it. Silo for All Mankind, which I don't think. Oh, for I, All I Mankind, I love it. But I yes. love it. I do love it. Don't, I don't think that this is their best season finale, but anyway, but uh, uh, Foundation, first of all, Leah Harvey plays Salver Harden. Leah Harvey is non-binary. So I, I think did not know that. I talk about foundation in a little bit. And I didn't know that. That's okay. That's good to yeah, know. Yeah. See how I didn't so, even know. You don't always know. That's great. I have, I have further thought beyond that. Yes. Have you seen any of foundation? I mean, I'm, yes, I'm we, no, we've no judge. seen you, both, both seasons. So we have okay. just recently. Yeah. I actually think that there's I don't even know how I'm thinking about this. I just have a nebulous idea around the the idea of the Cleons and identity. And I don't I don't know what kind of allegory I would call it, but you know, there's the, the there's a subplot about how 
one of the Cleons is different. And he tries yeah. to hide that difference. And he feels that, which it's an, a very interesting premise because the Cleons are this genetic dynasty. It's just, you know, they keep decanting the same, essentially genetically the same. Yeah. Clones of the same same guy. Clones of the same guy. And the, and yet they they are living in different times and have different tendencies and personalities to some degree. So I think it's a really interesting concept. And the idea that... I don't know. I, I think the idea of what is this? What is it to have your own identity, and how do you separate yourself out? I think. I, I think honestly, the more I think about the Cleons, that whole setup is. They're they're also very powerful and very protected. And you know, is the word I throw around a lot. They're very insulated. Yeah. And I they think are. that this premise, in a way, is 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 designed to. How can you feel that you have your own identity that you can thrive within if you, if there's two copies of you at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and you know that differentiating yourself and being your own person? I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of interesting subtext there. And again, I don't, I don't, as you can tell from my rambling, I don't have a fully formed premise about it, but I think it's an interesting idea. And I yeah, think, you've got my gears turning now. Yeah, I'm thinking yeah. about it now, and like you know the Cleons they their behavior is very regulated yeah and so that's a big thing and also throughout mm -hmm. the second season they talk a lot about where does this come from kind of well yeah and there's a lot of why do why are we like this why that those are uh, big things. i may have to dig into this later but yeah no i think it's I, I agree susan i totally agree i think it's you know when we see this a lot with people like the royal family in england they, they they are policed in a sense that like the gender presentation has to be this. Yes, you know and there are so many rules they, about their clothing and they are very much as well. Propagating this is what this kind of person looks. Yeah, the presentation of everything down to and you know that they know that they're going to be photographed every minute. How uh -huh. how their bodies, how their lives, how their parenting is 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 questioned. All of it. I, I definitely think I agree with you, Susan, that, that the way the Cleons are presented, there's a lot about, there's rules, right? There's rules about how the Cleons can present themselves. And it becomes a crisis in the second season because there is a Don, a brother Don, who doesn't conform and tries to step outside of the set even very very narrow path. And it's even with medical changes to his body. So you really got me going now. Okay. All right. So. Okay, that was the goal. Like, get get a get some a little fire burning in my brain. Okay. There you go. Right. All right. So, well, I'm going to talk about foundation a little bit more later because there was something that I saw in there that I wanted to speak about that it was kind of important. So we'll get there. But we're going to go okay. alphabetical. So we're going to clear out the ones with the zeros. Let's do it. Okay. Abbott Elementary season two zero. However, in one episode, a kid goes through his sales pitch for selling chocolate for a fundraiser and says, hello, sir or ma'am, or otherwise identifying human, which is basically a reworded pronoun joke. And guess what else I'm also just so tired of? It is like the laziest joke in the world. It's so... That is why I hate And I love Abbott Elementary, but you know, even these shows, these implicit biases seep in there like, this is funny, right? No, it's not. It's not. I it's guarantee not you, I guarantee you that some people associated with every show that does this or does that thing of like, oh no, it's a male character wearing a dress. Yeah, yeah. I guarantee that in the minds of some of those people on some of those shows, they think that they're doing a good thing. By, Probably. By 
I, that's the thing that's scary about Hollywood. It's like, oh, yeah. wow, you thought you, what? Whoa. No, that's not. You did the opposite <laughs> of what you were trying to do. Okay. We could talk about that a long time. Okay. Okay. Keep yeah. Going. Ahsoka season one, zero. Bad Batch season two, zero. The Bear season one, zero. The Bear season two, two. So I'll have to say I'm traumatized by the bear forever because yeah. I am Italian. Especially that Christmas episode. And I can probably map half of my family to the specific That Christmas people. episode is very traumatic. Like, but, okay. crap. Okay. Okay. Moving on. Okay. Two. Two. Let's go. Trans woman April Lichtman plays a culinary school student who has a couple background lines, but the character doesn't have a name and isn't mentioned as trans. How many of you knew she was there? I wasn't even sure until I looked her up afterward. And non-binary actor CG plays a chef, but the character's gender is never mentioned. However, there's also a scene where Tina and Evrahim misgender each other for fun when they meet up again after being mad at each other. I don't really understand this or why it's meant to be funny, but the characters think it is. Misgendering. Not funny, actually. Okay, Blue Eye Samurai. Zero, technically, but... It's a really good show. It's so good. Mo is Don't the one. Don't watch it with children nearby. Don't. Mo's the one who, who, who said, you should watch this. Okay, so I've got a lot to say about this of show. Of course you do. Okay. So, the show is about Mizu, half Japanese, half white woman with blue eyes who is hated for who she is in a very xenophobic society. It's very much about being physically different and being treated as a monster for it, and it's a pretty stunning trans allegory. Her mission is to kill the four white men in all of Japan that might have fathered her because she blames them for, quote, making her a monster. Now, there's a lot to unpack in so much. <laughs> and as part of hiding, she disguises herself as a man, which includes chest binding that you see in multiple episodes. We learn that her mother forced her to pretend to be a boy, quote, for her own safety, since people were looking for a blue-eyed girl. She had to pretend to be a boy to escape the violence she'd experience as herself, which is basically what boy-moding is. And yes, there's a Trans Tuesday on boy-moding and girl-moding at TillysTransTuesdays.com. This includes a scene of Mizu's mother cutting all her hair off. We also see a flashback of her as a kid binding her chest when a bully said she looked soft. This is her mother and society forcing her to play the role of a boy and a man rather than be her true self. Ringo, her apprentice in the show's comic relief, at one point vows not to tell anyone you're a girl, and Mizu stops him with her sword to his neck before he can finish saying girl. Mizu also always wears a scarf around her neck as a trans woman might to hide an Adam's apple. I totally noticed that, too. Yeah. Her mission of hunting down the people who made her a monster reads a lot like a self-hating trans person who hates who they are and wants to cut their transness out of their lives. There's a portion where she found happiness living as a woman with a husband, but for story reasons that are immaterial here, they weren't intimate for a very long time. But once they were, he realized something was different about her and says, quote, I want to see all of you. Now in the show, this is about her remarkable prowess with a sword, but he also literally says to her, show me your blade, which I mean, as <laughs> euphemisms for a pre-op or no-op trans woman go is pretty dang specific. Okay, but that's a little cheesy, cheesy ball, if that's well, really what they were doing. Okay. I'm just going to say. But once she does show him her prowess with the blade, he becomes afraid. He turns on her. She shows her true self, a woman who is good with a sword, and she is instantly cast out and hated by those who claim to love her. There's a scene in the finale where Mizu rises in front of flames and there's a picture of a phoenix on the wall behind the fire. And the entire concept of the phoenix is incredibly transy. One version of you dies so that another may rise from the ashes. 
And at the end of the finale, Mizu and Akemi, another woman on the show who's had her father and other men controlling her entire life, are both free of those men and have captured and controlled the men who tormented them. And that very much reads to me like a trans woman overcoming the shell of the man she was forced to pretend to be, locking him down so that she was finally in control. The show is really important in the ways it deals with racism and multiracial people and gender and sexism. But to me, the entire season story of Mizu herself also read really strongly as a trans feminine allegory in a whole lot of different ways. As far as I know, there weren't any trans people working on the show. But what's the standard refrain I've said so many times? People may be trans and not know it yet, but also it could just be coincidence because trans stories are human stories. Now, Mo, I know this is the one that jumped out at you and you mentioned it to me. Like, what what was it about it that takes mm-hmm. something off for you to said that there's some transness going on here? Well, so much of, it, of the show is about hiding, hiding, Mizu hiding who she is and yeah. feeling... I mean, one of the things that's hardest to write, and you know this because you're writers, I don't need your characters to be likable. I need them to be interesting. And Mizu, from the very first minute to me, was interesting. And what she's I, fascinating. One of the things I, yeah. I love about Mizu is that she's messy in a character coherent way. And what I mean by that is that I rooted for Mizu, or I was certainly cared about Mizu's fate, and that of other characters too. But here's what I think is interesting. I mean, there's so many things, but it flips a lot of the, you know, there's just expected grooves that Hollywood goes in, right? That, oh, well, here's this story again. What is it? A cisgender white man who has trouble with the women in his life? Who could, what? Never seen that. Never seen that. No, never seen that before. (laughs) Not familiar. Could you you make two to three million stories about that? So they use the issue of race to bring in a lot of ideas, I think. Yeah. Race and identity in a society where how people were allowed to exist, it was a narrow realm. Like if you were yeah. the, the the son of a farmer, I'm not, I don't think that you could, you know, most people are just making poverty wages and how, how they could live their lives was constrained. But it's an intensely the society in terms of how people appear certainly and this is not a rare thing in the world is very there's there's a lot of punishment given out to those who do not meet certain standards and codes and i think that we do yeah. we see this with more than one character with more than mizu <laughs> that the woman who we think is oh she's a you know she's from this well-off family her existence is also constrained. And one of the things I love the most about this season is that the idea of, I forget her name now, sorry. Can you remind Akemi? me? The, Akemi? Akemi. Akemi. Yeah. The idea of women in that time doing sex work or people in that time doing sex work was absolutely not shamed, even remotely. And I think that, again, this is coming at something in a new way because, oh my gosh, as a as a critic of this industry for 30 years, what I do not need, need to ever see again is a, characters for no reason at all having a meeting in a strip club. You know what I mean? Or like, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of male character actors in this piece. All of them are white. All of them are cisgender. And what? There's a brothel in this piece too? What? Who can? And this is where most of the female characters or, you know, non-male yeah. characters are like, oh, gosh, we've seen that a hundred times. But what I, I mean, it's very assured storytelling. 
I mean, I hope I'm not giving away the game here. I know Michael Green, one of the co-creators, a little bit. Like I don't like we, I've interviewed him, and you know, I we we know we our paths have crossed over the years. I think he's. I mean, I loved, I I love much of his past work, the shows that he's worked on in the past, and so. But this one just knocked me out in part because I was emailing him. You know, I have a book that's literally called I could go get it for you. 100 views of Edo, like this particular time and Japanese culture and the art that arose from it, the what they call the art of the floating world. It was very much driven by people who were frequenting these places where sex work occurred and there was, you know, drinking and that there was like these this there was this explosion of culture and the way that visually they depict things in the show I could go on about for hours. But I think how can I say this in a way that's when we when when there's a character who is either really or perceived to be from a marginalized community or a historically excluded community, there is this very strong tendency in Hollywood to make them noble. Yeah. And to make them kind of non-human in a way. Yeah, they can't be real or messy or flawed. They can't be real or messy. There are times in the season of Blue-Eyed Samurai where I'm like, wow, Mizu, you just did something. I, This is disappointing. You made a bad yeah. job. <laughs> so, you know, like me, I'm sort of saying... You know, because Mizu, without making Mizu a victim or without making it tragedy porn, if, can I say that? Is that a thing I can say? Yes, without making it about that, Mizu is deeply scarred by the way that she's been treated. Yep. And most of the, and it's sort of like we've talked about with the industry, she didn't create that society. She did not create these factors that very, really, and truly made her feel literally and figuratively isolated and alone right you didn't create that world it's not so on the, on the one hand it's not her fault and you're seeing her confront these systems of power and it's kind of like that's where the, like the the cool you know rebel energy of the story can come from but i don't know maybe she didn't want to be a rebel but she was kind of forced into this otherness into this yep. other space that she didn't want to be in and I think what's really interesting is about it is that she has decided to externalize her rage, but she's also internalized it too. And there's yeah. a lot of, there's a lot in Mizu that my heart breaks for her, but I also see it driving negative choices or, or questionable choices. There's a yeah. lot of self-hatred. And is. I think, I think that's a thing that it, storytelling can be so great at. I mean, Murderbot, just to return to that, which I will literally every time you ever talk to me. <laughs> a lot of the Murderbot story is about, wait, maybe I, des maybe I deserve personhood. Maybe I deserve to not be treated like an end table, to not be treated like a killing machine. Maybe, what do I just, then it's like very gradually over time. And I think that where they start Mizu from is a very dark place. And yeah, that's what makes for the story, gives the story the energy, because I can certainly say from experience that wanting to externalize and make somebody pay for how you feel is very relatable. But at some, and maybe wrongs do need to be righted. Maybe some people do need to be stabbed with a very long sword. Who can say? What, are there people I've wanted to stab with very long swords? Read my book is all I'm going to tell you. You can, you can decide. <laughs> the answer to that question 
I'll make I would a list. not do it. I'm not a violent person. Like, you know, I'm the person that, like, if I find a spider, I carefully pick it up and take it outside. Yeah, we take but, them outside. That's right. But this is the catharsis of, of, of storytelling, right? I can Absolutely. be like, yeah, stab that guy. But there's a part of me, Zoo, a very smart therapist said to me, anger is a secondary emotion. And I tried for a very long time to prove her wrong. And she's not wrong. What's behind the anger? You, anger is valid. I'm not saying don't be angry. I'm saying what's behind it. That is also part of it. Mizu was not meaningfully kept safe. And and she I feel like there's a huge part of her that is like, I'm gonna stab people because I do not want to deal with the grief and the hurt that I feel. Yeah. Because the world harmed me and I was powerless. And so yep. I think that in terms of the allegory of trans folks, I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't want to speak for anyone who's trans, but, you know, I was in the closet as a bi person because I was told my entire life that bi people don't exist. Right. You can't or you're just exist. gay in so training or whatever, right? You can't that be that. You are, yeah, I mean, yeah. Sex in the City at the height of my, of the, like the aughts HBO dominance buys a stop on the way to gay town and i'm like yeah. okay again once again i'm being told i didn't come out until i was in my i don't know i, I think i'm a thousand years old in my soul so I, I always forget but like it was not until like the last decade or so you know what i mean so yeah it's a beautiful absolutely visually gorgeous exploration of the literal and figurative quest of someone who does not have a place in the world and will make one. And so that's the noble side of the coin. The less noble side of the coin is that Mizu, you can't exist on rage alone. Yeah. It's not a healthy place to live. Right. And She's got to figure yeah. out how to. And she honestly has no self-esteem. No. Other than in her sort of abilities. But beyond that. Yeah. It's like, yeah instead of questioning that she's been told she's a monster her entire life right like mm -hmm. well i'll believes it and it's there believes right you made me internalize yeah she internalized it and she's continually pushing people away because on some level mizu is accepting this idea that she is unwanted and unwantable and yeah. i think that i think that that's why they gave themselves so many interesting places to go please let her run for more than seasons oh yeah right this show but yeah it, it's got so much it to say started out in such an interesting place yeah and they crushed it in that first season i i yeah i i just absolutely adored it yeah it's so good fall of the house of usher one episode two features non-binary actor jr tanako as farage Farage's gender never comes up, and they meet a grisly fate, as do like 17,627,917 cis people. Just want you to understand that their death wasn't a case of burying your queer so much as being at a show where everyone dies. The Flash, Season 9. 1. Nicole Maine's Dreamer from Supergirl guested on an episode, but she's not mentioned as trans, and so if you never watched Supergirl when the character showed up here, you'd have no idea she was a trans woman. For All Mankind, Season 4, Zero. Love the show. Maybe one of my favorites, but this was like the least queer season they've had, so they need to get back to their queerness because That's... I missed that. Okay. 
Foundation Season 2. I had zero, but I have since learned right on this recording that there is one, so that's excellent. But the other thing I noticed and that I wanted to talk about, there's a group of people called Mentalics who have various telepathic powers and have banded together because they were treated as monsters and experienced violence in their communities. And they placed beacons to call out to others like them so more of them wouldn't be afraid to come out. They read very, very queer. But then it was revealed that they were nefarious and evil and my heart fell, right? Because this is the kind of thing that happens to us all the time. But then in the finale, you find out they were all being mind controlled by one evil person and that really saved it for me, undid the harm that I thought had been done. And I think that just illustrates the importance of not judging the story on its representation, even allegorical representation, until you've seen the whole thing. Heartstopper Season 1 1. This show got an honorable mention last year when we were only partway through the season, but now we get to talk about it in full. Elle is a trans girl played by trans actress Yasmin Finney. It's mentioned by boys that she used to sit with them at an all-boys school and now goes to a girls' school, and that's a pretty great way to mention a character's trans organically. In one episode, Elle mentions one of the teachers always deadnamed her and was a transphobe. But the show also deals with homophobia experienced at the boys' school, so given that, I think it's okay. It totally fits in right with what the cis characters are going through. And then you get to Heartstopper Season 2, which had four trans characters. Wow, what? Yeah, I know. It's unheard of. Elle is a main character again, and they even reminded the audience she's trans when another trans girl, there can be two, who knew, what? tells her it would be so nice to go to this very queer art school they're checking out. Because then instead of being, quote, the trans girl, they could just be themselves. That trans girl was played by trans actress Belle Priestley. The episode also features trans man Ash Self as Felix. They both appear again a few times throughout the season. Also at an art show that Elle has a piece at, the art school's principal is played by trans woman Rebecca Root. There's also a teen cis boy Isaac who is coming to terms with being asexual or aromantic or both. And while neither of those is part of transness, it's still part of the queer community, and I think this is the only character in anything we watched this year that was either of those things. Justified City Primeval Season, season 1 Zero The Last of Us Season 1 1 Bella Ramsey plays Ellie. Bella is non-binary, but Ellie is a cis girl. Leverage Redemption Season 2 Zero Loki Season 2 Zero Sylvie was a great trans allegory in season one, but I didn't get that vibe from her as much in season two. It doesn't mean it wasn't there, but nothing jumped out at me right away. The Mandalorian season three, zero. Monster High season one, one. Frankie is one of the lead characters and they are non-binary and introduce themselves with they, them pronouns. Caveat, Susan and I are writing for Monster High in season two. That doesn't make me biased in reporting on Frankie, but I wanted to be transparent. Frankie is played by non-binary actor Iris Menace, and they're wonderful, and I adore Frankie so, so much. They're my favorite character, both to write and watch. Mrs. Davis, season one. Actually, it's the only season. It was a limited series. Yeah. Zero. What a great show. But there is one trans joke in the finale about the algorithm that runs everyone's lives, which is explicitly woman-coded through the entire show, using her power to, quote, swing her big dick around. And that just seemed really weird and out of place. You see, it's funny because a woman's voice and a penis, but they're together. Can you imagine? You know what? Many people can. My Adventures with Superman Season 1. Zero. 
In the episode with fifth dimensional imp Mitch's Picklick, yes, I can pronounce that. Let me remind you, I'm a huge Superman nerd. There is a league of Lois Lanes from across the multiverse. One is Lewis Lane and appears male but still wears earrings. It's not mentioned if Lewis is a butch cis woman or a trans man or non-binary, and I don't think the character has any lines, so I don't think I can count this one. But it was still nice to see. And that show is super cute. It's really cute. Okay. Never Have I Ever Season 4. 2. Alexandra Billings returns as the school counselor who's still not mentioned as trans, but it's at least a bigger role than the previous season she was in. The character of Fabiola has a they friend named Addison who appears and they them pronouns are used to refer to them and they're played by a non-binary actor. But in the same episode, someone calls the country of America a she and a teacher says it's nice to be reminded of America's pronouns. Another pronoun joke. How novel. Oh, and in another episode, a drunk student calls a cis woman sir. Misgendering, still not funny. Only Murders in the Building Season 3. Zero. Thank you for being here, Mo. My pleasure. Okay, we didn't plan it this way, but the discussion was so good and important that I didn't want to edit any of it down. So we're going to stop there for this week. Come back next week for the conclusion of the trans rep in TV talk and discussion of where things were at overall. Tilly Bridges and Transmission. Tilly's Trans Tuesdays is hosted by Tilly Bridges and Susan Bridges with audio editing and sound mixing by Jillian Morgan. The Google Doc and social media versions of this week's topic and all past topics are available at Tilly'sTransTuesdays.com. Special thanks to Daisy and Jane for the use of Sorry Not Sorry as our show's theme music. Please stop by and show your support at daisyandjane.bandcamp.com and soundcloud.com slash daisyandjane. You can find me at Tilly Bridges on Blue Sky, Twitter, and Hive, on Mastodon at Tilly Bridges at Mastodon.social, at Facebook.com slash Tilly S. Bridges, and on Insta and Threads at Heck Yeah Tilly Bridges. And you can find Susan on most of those at Susan L. Bridges. You can find Jillian at Audio Jillian on Blue Sky. You can join the Tillyverse Discord server by following the link at the very bottom of Tilly'sTransTuesdays.com. We hold regular watch parties for the Matrix films and other trans movies where I do a live Q&A, and it's blossomed into a wonderfully supportive, compassionate, kind community of friends. We'd love to have you join us. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.